Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 44. Can I skip the book and watch the movie? Hello and welcome to episode 44 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that covers everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts. I am your host, Tom Panneries, and this time out, I am actually putting on my English teacher hat again, and I'm going to spend some time talking about books and movies. More specifically, this episode is about books being adapted into feature films. To help me along here, I brought along someone who is a book guy. He's, in fact, one of the book guys. He also is part of the Relatively Geeky Network of Podcasters, with his shows being the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase, which he co-hosts with his daughter, Emily. So please welcome to the show, Professor Allen. How are you doing today? Good to, good, good to speak with you, Mr. Panarese. Do I have to... to- do I have to raise my arm when I have a question? Do I have to raise my hand? No, no. My father's a question. Okay. My, my father's not in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, I wanted I wanted to have you on mainly because um, well, you had me on the Book Guys show mm-hmm. uh, a few months ago, I think it was, and we were talking about my book. But but I've you turned me on to that podcast and and and. I've always loved how you and Emily on the Shortbox Showcase do delve, even even when you are going on about stuff in comics, or you did a couple of really good episodes about um, the uh, process of adapting. Uh, the process of adapting uh, the non-fiction, uh, the, the prose and stuff that is, you know, right. licensed pieces for comic books, as well as um, a great episode on on canon. Uh, which I think also kind of fits into a little bit of what you know what counts and what doesn't count in a story when you're when you're going through it. So so I'm, I'm glad you were able to come on to this, and uh, I'm I'm going to tell the audience a little bit about what motivated this episode of the podcast because it actually comes from from my work. Um, the last book my sophomores read, my general level sophomores read, right before Christmas was Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, which is one of personally one of my favorite books of all time. A, a, a legitimate classic. Yeah. And um, we were, it was the week before Christmas, we had done all the tests, all of the stuff, and we were like, okay, let's spend the last couple of days. I did the thing that they tell teachers, you shouldn't do this. We watched the movie. If you're familiar with the film version of Fahrenheit 451, it was uh, directed by Francois Truffaut. It's his only... Um, English language film, and it stars Julie Christie. She's has, she has a dual role as the main character's wife, as well as uh, Clarissa Clarice. The kind of <laughs> Clarissa in that novel is almost a manic pixie dream girl. She's this sort of free spirited girl and stuff. And um, the movie's awful. It's just, it's my, I mean, we, we were all watching this going, what is this? And we, we went, I mean, the kids were just like, 
had it not been a couple of days before break, we would have just shut it off and moved on. But we're like, yeah, we got two days left before break. Let's finish the movie. And we just, we pulled it apart. And, uh, but at the same time, after we were done making fun of it, we started talking about how we would remake the movie, what we would put in there, you know, what you could do with special effects now and stuff. And from that, I was like, this would make an interesting podcast episode, you know, um, adaptation, what makes a good adaptation, what makes a bad adaptation, um, something you brought up in our notes back and forth, um, a good adaptation versus a good movie, because sometimes the two are not the same. Uh, and then, so we're, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about some of our favorite films based on, on literature or, or adapting literature, adapting books in general to television, to movies and things. And uh, as well as what we'd also maybe like to see made or remade. And we are going to do that after this break. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. And, uh, and we're back. So I already mentioned my whole reason behind the episode, and uh, I'll probably get into a little bit more specifics about what that movie is and, and other, other films that, that, that we've both seen really uh, and what worked and what didn't work about them. But before we even get into that, cause we could probably just spend time saying, Oh, this movie is a good one. This movie is a bad one. And, and that, um, which we'll probably do toward the end of the, <laughs> to the end of the show. Uh, the, the first question I wanted to raise was um, why adaptation to begin with? You know, what, what is the motivation aside from money? <laughs> the well, obviously the subsidiary you, you can you can I'm put asking on a your finance English, professor. <laughs> if you're putting on your English teacher hat, I get to put on my business and finance professor. Okay, hat. come right. on. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Cuz sub, sub subsidiary rights is so big, yeah. especially in publishing, cuz it's probably how they make a lot of their money back. <laughs> um especially because publishing publishing is like I mean, granted, I interned in publishing for one summer back in 1998, but it's such a screwy business model where you have so many books that they take for a loss and the remainder thing. And it's just like you you wonder how that industry survives the way it does and the way it has for so many years. I'm talking about like the big house, your random house, your HarperCollins, you know, you know, not not the sort of smaller publishers or the independent books or the self-publishing people, but you know your classic Penguin and all these people have been around for decades and stuff. Um, okay, so well, I don't know. Let's start with the then. Let's start with the money, the money aspect of it. Well, the the sort of the example that I was thinking, I'm 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 thinking from the movie studios perspective. Mm-hmm. You know how 
how it gets, you know, why they look to books yeah. as, as sources. And sort of the example that I thought of is you want to go into the restaurant business mm-hmm. and you're deciding between a totally original, fresh idea for your restaurant or buying a TGI Fridays franchise. Mm-hmm. And the franchise is a lower risk proposition as a business owner. It's probably lower profit potential too, that that goes hand in hand, but it's certainly lower risk. And the advantages to opening a franchise restaurant versus your own restaurant, there's some proven track record, some brand awareness, built-in audience. It's just safer. Mm-hmm. And, I th- and I think from a just financial term, I'll use the word conservative, meaning simply yeah, safe yeah, yeah. In, in, a, in a finance sense. It's a, it's a conservative business decision. It's a, it's a risk-averse business decision. So if you're only talking about you – know, if you're talking about sources for, for your movies, that is the equivalent. That's the safer. It's a, it has a proven track record. Yeah. And, 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 and I guess there I'm only talking about bestseller you know, books mm-hmm. or well-known books, um, you know, books with, with brand recognition, name, name recognition. And sometimes it's not just the book. You know, it's gotten to the point where Nicholas Sparks sells the movie rights mm-hmm. the day he signs the contract to start writing the book. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, and so you have you have you have author brands who have turned into into movies. Yeah, and and there are some there are some book series that. In recent years, it's almost like it's expected that there will be a movie. Um, it's it it like it was never. I don't think it was ever a question of if they were going to make the Hunger Games films. Right. It was when they were going to make the Hunger Games films. And I'm wondering, trying to think just back into recent movie history, but I would say we can lay the um, inspiration for that on probably. I mean, it probably it goes back way further than this because it's not this. It's not like they just started adapting recent bestsellers into um, film, but on the level that they have in in the last ten, fifteen years, where they're doing big budget blockbusters based on bestselling novels. If you go back to like those the, the first Harry Potter and the, and the Lord of the Rings right. films, I mean, those made so much money that it's like okay, we can grab up anything. And it's hit or miss because the Narnia movies did not do well enough to get them all made. Right. Um, they tried. They went, yeah, they went progressively. They yeah. Progressively down. Yeah, the Percy Jackson films yeah. didn't really get there yet. But at the I same, mean, there are lots of bombs. I mean, we yeah. can talk Vampire Academy. We could, <sighs> I mean, there are lots of young adult bombs, the Philip mm-hmm. Pullman uh, attempt. Um, yeah. So it's almost these these uh, big budget blockbusters still are the exceptions. You know, and we go further back. It took Stephen King's films were hit or miss for a number of years too, you know? So, so, but at the same time, I think that is a good point about how they're, they're safe because maybe they perform pretty solidly unless they're absolutely horrible movies. I can imagine adapting, older literature though um 
the rash of Jane Austen inspired movies in the early nineties, right. for instance. Right. It, I mean, there's always an audience for a period piece. Um, whether it be years and years and years ago when you had epics on the level of the biblical epics or the, you know, or, or you had these, these period pieces or people watch Downton Abbey pretty religiously. Now it's not something I mean, I've gotten you, into, but I mean, we go back to gone with the wind, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as a, yeah. as an adaptation book, you know, best-selling book adaptation. So there's nothing, nothing, she said n- nothing new about it. Perhaps the the ratio, the percentage. It seems like every movie mm-hmm. is a sequel to yeah. something and or an adaptation of something. Yeah. Or a, a, f- a word that I'm so sick of hearing, a reboot of something. <laughs> just, where it's just a remake of something. Or you're, I, I get what you're getting at. But uh, even some franchise films have been book-based. The James Bond films up to a certain point were That's all true. of the Ian Fleming's films. And um, I know you're, I believe you're a big Sherlock Holmes yes. person. And I, I, I have to admit, I'm have never really been. Okay. I read the Hound of the Baskerville Baskervilles in high school. I enjoyed it. I just never, never got into it, but that's something that has been either, either adapted or there's been original stories. In fact, the only Sherlock Holmes movie I've ever seen is young you Sherlock. Say Robert Downey Jr. Okay. No, okay. young Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> From eighty was that eighty five? Right. It was Barry. I think it was Barry Levinson mm-hmm. directed it, and I I had it on VHS years ago, and <laughs> I remember liking it. Um, so I might it might be something that I pick up again. Of, of, um, of course, from a practical, uh, from a business perspective, <laughs> when you throw in when when you talk about old books like that, you're talking mm-hmm. public domain. That so was you have free you have you know complete. Yeah, freedom to do what you want to, as well as the there's no cost. That was, I mean, that's why you can have Sherlock Holmes versions of Sherlock Holmes on American TV, British TV, mm-hmm. and the theaters at the same time. Because nobody owns the copyright at the moment mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. the stories of characters. Yeah, no, that's a good point. This is why we can get. I mean, I haven't seen much out of a Charles Dickens adaptation lately, yeah. but yeah, you you can you can go that far back and do that. And that was one of the questions I also wondered too. On a, on well, a we have to say a million people have done Christmas Carol, but, <laughs> but of 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 other other Dickens works, yes. <laughs> where's the where's the oh I, I lost where's the Martin Chisel what, what what's that one? Oh, I don't know. I <laughs> I, I am not. <laughs> I've read. I've read um, that. I've read Great Expectations, and I read A Tale of Two Cities, and that's about as Dickens as I get. I, my if there's a if there's an area of literature that I actually tend to prefer, it's it tends to be American lit, right? From about Walt Whitman going forward, with the possible exception of a few people prior to him. Yeah, I, I, I can tell with this. You know, derisive attitude towards Jane Austen, <laughs> towards uh, Sherlock Holmes. Towards, it's, this is a, it's the, quite the, a biased, uh, a Marocentric view here, Panerys. I, I have nothing against Holmes. I just never, <laughs> I just never got into it. The Austen thing comes from the fact that I had, I was assigned Emma no less than three times over the course of four years of college, <laughs> and by the third time, I didn't even read it. I had read it so many times, and I got sick of it. Um, 
my wife enjoys it. My wife likes Edith Wharton and I, and I cannot, I'm not a big Edith Wharton fan. Um, cause she was an English major. And so we have a lot of, our son's going to be very well read. He's already pretty well read. So <laughs> the question, the other question I have though is, is, um, and, and one of the things that, that, that I did want to establish that we were talking about before we went on the air here is that we're really not going to bring up, um, Shakespeare or, or anything that would have been a play because by nature drama is intended to be performed as in, in perpetuity. So it always makes sense that somebody would adapt a play for television or a film and do it over and over and over again. One of my favorite plays of all time has been adapted repeatedly and I've never really seen a terrible version of it, which is Lorraine Hansberry's a raisin in the sun. Um, there's a wonderful version with Sidney Portier. There's one with Danny Glover. Um, there's one with like Puff Daddy, which is not bad. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you know, so, but, but, but that's one but that where like. That seems like less of a leap. Yeah. Play to movie. Yeah. Than book to movie. Uh, that's I mean, the other visual thing. Visual to visual. It's. Yeah. I mean, there are obviously film techniques and yeah. editing and sound yeah. and other things that you can do, but I think and, those are. Cl- more closely yeah. related. Well, and the Portier version of that play, uh, the Portier version of that movie, I think it was the stage company. So it, it looks very, yeah. very deliberately staged. And it reminds me of the, um, the Henry Fonda version of 12 Angry Men. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Which is another, which is another a, movie that looks like a play. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're talking more about just things that were written prose fiction. And I was wondering if, if on some level it gives Hollywood a little bit more of that layer of, Oh, this is going to sound so pretentious, but that intelligence or legitimacy or something that it can have when it's also pumping out the ninth millionth saw sequel (laughs) and, you know, just popcorn flick at, or, or while Michael Bay is still employed <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to, and I think I can legitimately crap all over Michael Bay. Because <laughs> That's that we're in full agreement on that. One. Yeah, But like, you know, I mean, and, and I like a good popcorn flick and I like a good disaster movie or something. As long as the plot is reasonable and I don't feel like this is absolutely, absolutely terrible. But, um, but yeah, it's just I I wonder if that's part of it too that that it's almost like because some of these movies that get adapted from if they're recent bestsellers or they are classic literature become Oscar bait. Yeah, that that could be. But you know, I I I, I think there's something also going on even even with the not bestsellers mm-hmm. that you know, from a practical perspective, you know, even an unknown or a small book has an advantage in that it's already written. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it, you know, it's so much easier to edit. Oh yeah, than it, than it is to create. So, in essence, the first draft is already done. Yeah, and in fact, the I guess the question that um, the next question was, you know, you're taking something from the page to the screen, and it's not like you you have to write a script. You know, you can't just take um, Dracula and plonk it down in front of a bunch of actors and say, okay, action. You, you have to take that book and you have to write a script out of it. So what makes a good adaptation of a film? Like what goes into creating a film that you can hold this up next to 
its source material and say these are both excellent and you should because I would there are very very few times where I would advocate watching the movie and skipping the book altogether Um, but most of the time if a film's good I can say read the book and see the movie and sometimes I'd say read the book first but (laughs) (laughs) well of course you would Uh, I think you know, I think the part of the problem with adaptations of, of this nature is that the scope of a book is so much larger. Mm-hmm. You know, at least the books are that much longer. You know, I'll mention The Hobbit here, and probably not for the last time. Yeah. I mean, you probably remember the comments early on in the production was that, now how can they turn one little children's book into three long movies? Mm-hmm. The unabridged audio of The Hobbit is 11 hours long. <sighs> it's not a short it is short for a book, but there's plenty of material in there for a couple of long movies. Okay, maybe not three, but there's enough material in there. Yeah, and so, it, but I, but I think I think that the fundamental problem is there's so much in mm-hmm. a book, and there's so little time in a movie. You know, yeah. and I I listen to a ton of audiobooks, mm-hmm. and so I'll compare it to that. You know, I don't know if you're an audiobook listener, Tom, but. I try to never listen to the abridged audiobooks. I just fear I'm not getting the whole story. I, I, time is one of the reasons that I don't actually <laughs> listen to them. I've listened to a few here and there, and I don't think I would ever want to listen to an abridged audiobook yeah. because I would want the full thing. You know, well, it's almost essence, like reading a yeah. Reader's Digest version right. of it. But in, in, in essence, you almost have to expect that's what you're going to get from a movie, though. Yeah, I mean yeah. they have to cut. You can't put 320 pages into 105 minutes. Well, they'll, they'll cut subplots things out of. Things have to go. Yes. Yeah, oh yeah. Things have to go. They'll cut one of one of the. Um, I'm trying to think of, of of one movie that I know that they cut a subplot out of the film, um, out of the book to fit the film was To Kill a Mockingbird, and there is a subplot in there uh, where the brother's name is Jem. I think it's either Jeb or Jem and I'm, I'm, I'm blanking and I could walk over to my copy. It's sitting on the shelf over there, but her brother, her brother like pulls out the neighbor woman's flowers or something as a prank and Atticus makes him read to her and she finally passes away. And the revelation becomes that, you know, you were doing this thing for her and she always appreciated it because she was trying to kick a morphine addiction before she died and you helped her do that. And it's the whole thing of, it's almost this like no good deed goes unpunished sort of lesson, but to the central plot of the film with, with Bob Ewell and, and, and Boo Radley and the, the rape uh, male Ewell and, and the case with against Tom and all that, it's not absolutely essential. You could excise that from a film version and have the core, um, the soul of that book be in that film, which it is. So, so that's a really that's that's one example I have. So um, I think you know, I think scope in terms of length, mm-hmm. and then sort of the scope in terms of of budget. I mean, the way I like to think about it, <laughs> yeah. both in in books and comic books, is that the budget <sighs> is is unlimited. Mm-hmm. Right, you can have as many scenes, as many actors, as many characters, as many exotic locales. Oh yeah, you know, you, know, you can do a you know sci-fi epic. Or a fantasy, you know, period piece, yeah, which would be impossible to film. Yeah, well, we've I've heard people talk about or uh, about how when they adapt Batman, 
in the comic book, he's sometimes shown swinging around Gotham like he's Spider-Man. <laughs> and yet, in the films, you don't see a lot of that. Because it's just, it, it, in earlier versions, it's just not practical. You know, they, they can't, you might not get the shot to work. It's, it's not an easy shot to get. Um, so they rely on, on other things. I'm curious to what to see that, what they'll do with, with future versions of the character and stuff. And also, if you are trying to think a little bit more practical, nobody's got upper body strength like that. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, so again, so the, the things you can describe oh, yeah. in, in book, I think it's classically, it's one of the, one of the examples they use. I want to say it's, it's one of the, it might be one of the John Carters or it's one of those, mm-hmm. you know, pulpy sci-fi. Yeah. And, one of the things about this new world is that there's a fourth primary color. I mean, that's just part of the description of the world. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? <laughs> it's cool to read. What? How? Yeah. What? What can you make of that? Yeah, I know. You know so, so they're you know, in terms of like size differentials of beings, or you know, multi-limbed. Yeah. To have uh, you know beings that that aren't symmetrical, well, that aren't bipedal. Yeah. I mean, you have very practical practical yeah. limitations. It, it, what the Truffaut film that I was talking about, um, Fahrenheit 451. The one thing that is not in the book, that is in the book that is not in the film, is the mechanical hound, mm, which okay. uh, you know which sniffs him out and and it is. I think Bradbury describes it as spider like, and I keep picturing it as one of like. Dark Side's hunger dogs or something, but I seriously picture if you one of the hunger dog kind of mechanical hunter hunger dogs from the Legends miniseries from '86. That's that's what I have in my mind. But Truffaut doesn't do it, and but Truffaut made that film in '66, I think, and it, it probably wouldn't have worked. But if you, you, touch th- on, yeah, you but I think you touch on something interesting, mm-hmm. and that is one of the great assets that a novelist has. Is their reader's imagination? Yeah. That again, you can describe that, or describe a fourth primary color, or you can just you can just describe how a character looks. Yeah. What what their voice is, what their hair looks like, what their clothing are, and you and I can have totally different views of that. But when it's filmed and shown to us in a concrete way, at most one of us might be right. Yeah. Or, or at most, probably yeah. neither of us. I think you know the, yeah. the, that visual will never hit. Certainly, won't hit everybody's visualization. But, but it'll, if, it'll hit very few people's visual visualizations. Well, that, and that was actually, and I hate to bring this up because because Stephanie Meyer just can't write. But when <laughs> if you paid it, to, if you were when when they cast those movies, those Twilight films, and they cast Robert Pattinson as um, whatever his character's name was, Edward. Um, the fans lost it. They were like, they they had that exact reaction of this is not what I pictured, and because it was such, because the whole casting process of Twilight and everything associated with those films got a ton of coverage in books like in like Entertainment Weekly and those sorts of magazines. In the same way that we all obsess right now over Batman, <laughs> Superman, or Star Wars or something, I. I've done a very, very good job at keeping a media blackout where Star Wars is concerned, and I've only watched the trailer. I've only watched what's been like released as far as, you know, okay, I'm going to watch the trailer, and then when the next trailer comes out, and when the next trailer comes out, I'm like, I'm not going to follow the news because because of what's been going on with Batman and Superman, where people are arguing and arguing and arguing, and I joked with Donovan Grant on my other show, 
is it wasn't that the worst movie that's ever made? Oh wait, it hasn't come out yet. I mean, and, and but they cast they cast Ben Affleck, and people lost their minds. And and so because we all have certain things in our head, you're right. But I think a good adaptation, you at least get the um, the feel of it, the tone of it. Like you might not have that specific actor in mind for the role, but I don't know. It 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 the the film feels like um, the Outsiders. Uh, the Coppola film, The Outsiders, with with C. Thomas Howell as Pony Boy, and I don't know if I would have cast all those actors exactly like that if I was going to sit down and break down that movie. But I will tell you that feels like that book. The characters are dirty. They're living in, you know, there's no parents around. They're they're very poor. I mean, they feel like the greasers the way they're described, and they don't feel. They don't look like Danny Zuko and the T-Birds, right? Because that was the most recent greaser that you had in in our popular culture that was popular. So I think if you're getting the tone right and the feeling right, and you're faithful to the plot to the point where you're not completely abandoning it, I think you're doing a at least a serviceable job. I think this is this is interesting and sort of moving into sort of how what's the that process how do you adapt and i think to me as i was thinking about this the last few days i think there's sort of three basic things to keep in mind or to uh, goals to shoot for almost when you're adapting and one is the plot and the story Mm -hmm. sort of general faithfulness to the plot and the story and then secondarily to that you can't always do that to, to the extent that you can secondarily is what you were saying tone or feel or vibe yeah you know just just to get that feel even if you have to for whatever practical purposes change the plot change the story simplify it you know pull subplots out yeah um or if you're changing the the location or changing the time period uh changing you know some some of those details um and as long as you get the vibe the feel the tone yeah and then, and then even sort of almost the third level, if for whatever reason you can't do those, if you get the theme or the plot, you know, adapting yeah. to tell the not the exact story, but to impart the same message as the original work. Yeah. So I think there's sort of different levels of quote unquote faithfulness that if you're hitting one of those three. At least you're sort of generally, um, generally faithful to the, you know, whether to the plot of the story, or to the tone, feel, or to the theme, or to the point of the story. And, and sometimes, um, doing number two and three actually helps you with number one. Um, right. I'm not a fan of Ethan Wharton. Um, I hated Ethan from uh, the Age of the Age of Innocence. I didn't hate, but I didn't love it either. Yet, I, after I read it, um, a, this was in college, and a bunch of us rented the Scorsese movie and sat down to watch it. Daniel has Daniel Day Lewis and Michelle Fiverr, and it's a gorgeous movie. 
and we were sucked in. And we we're like, this was the book we just a few us were like, this is the book we just saw. but and it's the it, it's a pretty good adaptation. And you're just like, all right, yeah. So so if you're if you're getting that tone down, if you've been able to see your way through and, and granted it's Martin Scorsese, he knows how to right. he's, use his yeah. material. And so if you're able to see your way through the material and then you can take the things that might be dull about the film and, and make it way more more interesting than you remember it on the page. Um I think sticking to the plot is good to a point. Sometimes books have certain plot structures that won't work well on film. And the example you brought up, The Hobbit, the example I was going to bring up was The Two Towers. Um, because uh, because it, The Two Towers, the film, when we were, when the movie, I had f- read The Hobbit years and years and years before, like junior high school. I never got around to the three Lord of the Rings books and then the movies were coming out, I think. And so, um, so fellowship of the ring was, was coming out and I'm like, well, I'm going to read all three. And I, I finished fellowship before I saw fellowship. And then I just read the other two. I read the, I think I reread the Hobbit first, but two tower, we used to joke. My friends and I were joking that return of the King is your reward for making it through the two tower, the second half of the two towers. <laughs> Cause it's, it's page after page of Sam and Frodo walking and walking and walking. And and part it's too- of that's the structure. Oh, because yeah. he yeah. does not intermingle the subplots no. or, the, or the groups. There are hundreds of pages yeah. where it's just this group and then hundreds of yeah. pages of just that group. And when, when Jackson did that in the movie and intermingled the two halves of the book, it was brilliant. It was perfect. It was such a great movie. And it's almost like it's almost like he took the source material. He knew its failings on that regard, yet he wanted to be faithful. He's like, well, if I just cut between them, the audience is going to come along with it, whereas a lot of people may have abandoned that book about halfway through the second half because it was just it's not unreadable, but it is very, it, it is a, it's a slog at certain points. So allowing the director a little bit more creative freedom rather than having to say absolutely faithful to the, to the source material, like in lockstep, I think, I think also helps. Yeah. I, th- I think somewhere in here, we have to talk about the Charlie Kaufman, Spike Jones movie adaptation. <laughs> I've seen that. I haven't now granted. I haven't watched that in, Oh, quite a number of years. I mean, it's sort. It was. It's sort of an adaptation of the Orchid Thief mm-hmm. nonfiction book by Susan Orlean. Yeah, but that's not really what the movie's about. That's yeah. what Kaufman was hired to write. Um, but it's. But he could not figure out a way to crack that book and it, turn it from the nonfiction book into a into a three act structure of a movie. So mm-hmm. what the movie really is is about an author's struggle to break a book into, and then the sort of madness that and the insanity that flows from that. It's metatextual in a way that does not get you lost, as the you know, as sometimes metatextual things can kind of do. <laughs> Grant Morrison, um, <laughs> but that, but you know, adapting a. You know that was a nonfiction work, so it did not have a three-act sort of mm-hmm. movie structure to it, with character arcs and subplots. And you know, you yeah. could sort of understand, you know, the 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 struggle of getting that from one media into an, one medium into another. And on the flip side, one that was able to be done 
is the film Mean Girls. Because mm-hmm. Mean Girls is based on a book called right. Queen Bees and Wannabes, mm-hmm. which is essentially a sociological piece about high school or middle school or, or something mm-hmm. about cliques. And Tina Fey just took the book and, and made this um, Heathers-esque film that was uh, – it's, it's still really worth watching. Oh, yeah. um, so we go on from, from what what goes well and what goes right – and when it goes really, really right, you have films that are not just based on classic books. They become classic films of their own. Um, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings is a great example of see the films and read the books. The Harry Potter films, I think, at least talking to my students, I have not read all the books and not seen all the movies, but my students are like, yeah, they're really worth of just side by side. Um, and then going a little further back, you have films, um, The Grapes of Wrath, for instance. Uh, I thought it was a very, very good film from a book that is incredibly dense. Right. Uh, so, um, and they they stand up in their own way. But I, know, I, th- I think some of the noir. Mm-hmm. I think it, uh, Maltese Falcon. Yeah, that novel is incredibly hard to follow. And I think that's part of what the movie did. It asks more questions than gives answers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one, again, where the tone fits. Yeah, I have to go back where they, and read where they, that. They, they sort of captured that yeah. that aspect of it really yeah. well. And now, though, we're going to move on a little bit to mistakes. Um how, where can this go wrong? What how cuz there are for every good film based on a work of literature or every good television series or or t- TV miniseries or something based on a work of literature, there are some serious duds like Fahrenheit 451 <laughs> or things um a movie that I can come up with all all the different examples of it, and I'll, I'll use it as one of my examples. Then I have a couple other examples as well. So, like, what what mistakes do filmmakers and or 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 not even the filmmaker, the producers, the studio, for instance? Because a lot of times films do get ruined because of what we who read comics refer to as editorial meddling, <laughs> executive meddling. You know, the idea that um, is it the Red Pony? Where the pony lives in the film, he dies in the Steinbeck book. Like that sort of, I it, it, it was a, it was. I'm sorry, Scott. It was like a Disney thing way back, where they would change the ending to be upbeat, or at least that's what the reputation they got for some some films here and there, like where you would change the ending and stuff. And and so I think basically in this category, you put yeah. any adaptation of any Philip K. Dick story. Yeah. You know, and, and and you know, Blade Runner's the classic one where they actually got some of the feel, the grittiness of it. Yeah, but that went in a completely different direction. And it had the, but you know, the the film, the 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 theatrical version ends happy. Yeah, which makes no sense, <laughs> and is about as unfaithful to the source material as you can get. I mean, that that smacks of editorial, you know, oh. market testing, focus group. Oh yeah, yeah. Although Total Recall took. Right took a short story. Mm-hmm. Yes, it has a happy ending. It it almost like it used it as a jumping off point. And it just decided, and I think it was just because Verhoeven was directing it, and he said, okay, we're going to cover 
most of what's in that story, and then we're just going to go completely off the like we're going to go into wackadoo land with yeah, but here's, but yeah, Martians but here, and stuff. Here, here, here's the question, Tom: Would mm. you rather have a 400-page novel adapted where we have to cut two thirds of it? Or a fifty-page short story where we have to double it. That's a good point. To get to our our movie runtime, and it's and it's unfortunate that short film is not as popular, yeah. as it could be because there's Vonnegut short stories that I would love to see adapted. But you'd have to stretch them out, but you'd have to stretch have to them out. Something to them, yeah. Yeah, but they would work perfectly in a short format mm-hmm. or a long form short format. You know, something that's right. um, or in that classic sort of. Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, mm. Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Um, one of my favorite things to show in English class is the Alfred Hitchcock Presents adaptation of Roald Dahl's Lamb to the Slaughter, where um, Barbara Bel plays a housewife whose husband comes home and he says he's leaving her and she's kind of out of it. And she says, oh, you can't leave without your supper. And she goes into the garage and opens up the meat freezer and she's got a big leg of lamb and she walks into the living room and smacks him on the head with it and kills him. (laughs) And then the twist at the end is that she throws it in the oven and the police eat the murder weapon. (laughs) And it's so well done in the story. And then they did it for Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And it's like, you couldn't do that as a feature film. But for a 30-minute episode of a television show like that, an anthology television show, it was brilliant. There's... um. An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, I think, was also done for Twilight Zone, I think. I think it's Twilight Zone. And there have been post-short stories that have been adapted to shorter forms. But the short-form one-off film, television episode, anthology, something like that, is not something that is very popular anymore. Um, But yeah, I I agree with you. It's, It's hard to fill in all this stuff on a short story. It's almost like it's better to cut than it is to add. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I was just, I bet that just sort of thought came to me. That's a good, that is a good point. Yeah, it's actually what I always tell my students with their with their drafts. It's always better to write more than less because it's easier to cut things than it is to add things sometimes. Um, but when when films are just not good or they're, um, we could talk about how they go completely away from the structure of the plot. Fahrenheit 451 is a great example. Um, he changes the name of the character's main character's wife for whatever reason. I don't know. The character of Clarissa is completely rewritten in a different way. I think it's so Julie Christie could play both roles. Um, and and um, there are some moments that are well done. There's this sequence where they show up at old, the old woman's house and she's got all these library books and they're going to burn them all down. And she says, I'm not leaving. She basically says, um, you're getting these books over my dead body and literally means it because she lights a match and burns herself. That whole sequence is done very, very well. But there are just things in the book, in the, in the movie where you expected more out of it. Um, Mildred, his wife, through the whole book, spends her time in the living room in front of these the parlor walls, which are basically huge televisions that take up the entire wall. Now, we have those. We don't have them in our houses now. But jumbotrons exist. And and this is 66, so this is about a – this is maybe – Truffaut's making this before Star Trek premiered, but – we were all talking about this. I, I expected the parlor wall to be bigger, they were saying. 
in my students and it's not very big in the film but and i even i said yeah i was expecting the bridge of the starship enterprise <laughs> the and they were like yes and so that that's just one of those things where you have this idea in your head of what something's supposed to look like and it's not exactly the way it is on film sometimes you let it go but there are sometimes where you're like i i just can't can't do this and when you change too much and it's not gripping enough then you kind of lost the audience. Now on that, on on the on your Fahrenheit 451, <laughs> mm-hmm. is it both a bad adaptation and also a bad film? Would you say, or it, is or or are are they? I mean, how how intermingled in your mind are those it, two things? It's a little bit of both. Now, part of the reason that we didn't uh, that it's bad is that it's it looks very dated. And so, because it, it's clearly from the '60s, and it's dated in a way that um, it doesn't hold up very, very well. And some of the moments are very, very cheesy to look at and stuff. And it, it's kind of a task to, you know, you're you, when you spend that much time making fun of it because it's just there's just so yeah. many holes in the different things of the movie. Even the parts that are done well are good, but it's kind of it's not. I said awful because it just sounded good at the beginning. Of the thing. It's a mediocre movie. It's and from somebody like like Truffaut, who with great with great source material, yeah. I, I hate to sound like this, but I ex- you expect more, right? You know, um, I, I I've seen all of one Truffaut film. I've seen the Four Hundred Blows because I took intro to film back in college, but that's an amazing film, you know. So um, that's yeah. That's I, I I did want to talk about the difference between good adaptation and or a good movie mm-hmm. and they don't always have to go together and i will mention the hobbit and, and lord of the rings that yeah. i think i mean lord of the rings are i think universally would be thought of as better movies than mm-hmm. than the hobbit films but they're probably less faithful adaptations okay i think there's there's no tom bombadil there's a lot less singing in the, yeah, in the that's true I mean, the Tone is, is quite different, mm-hmm. expanding the roles of Eowyn and, and Arwen and, yes. and, and, and others. So I think in that case, Jackson made a lot of choices to deviate from the material to make a better film. Mm-hmm. And I think there's less of that in The Hobbit, which is to say those movies are, are not as good. Mm-hmm. But I they f- were actually much more faithful. Huh. Uh, with with a big exception of the elves, like a lessentorial, yeah, that sort of that that um, subplot uh, being added. But there are a lot of places where they could have gone different directions to make a better film, and I think they stuck to the book. Whether that's reaction to some criticisms they had gotten uh-huh. from you know book fans with the first ones, or you know, I'm not sure what the what the reasoning is, but to keep I mean that many dwarfs for one thing, that many characters to do the entire riddle game uncut. Mm-hmm. A brilliant scene. It's long, and I mean there were just there were places, and, and even I mean there are some you know Easter eggs and shout outs and that sort of thing, and. And you know names, you know name checks and things that you think were almost squeezed in there, and that just, I just, you know, I, th- I think those were in in a lot of ways more faithful to the source material, which hampered them from being uh, as 
as good films as they could have been. Mm-hmm. And I can see where you're where you're cutting characters and you're cutting um, or you're compressed. Sometimes a filmmaker will compress characters right. because um, I was re- I was reading the book version of a film I'm going to cover for a future episode, and the, there were three or four, two or three characters that kind of got compressed into one because they didn't need to be two or three characters really in the film, and and so that's almost like a tightening up of something. And one you know, example, so, so, sort of, you know, just just classically, you know, the best friend and the coworker, yeah, and the high school buddy, yeah, three different characters in the book. Boom, that's one character. Yeah, exactly. That's a basic example. Exactly. And um, two two book two films that I can think of that are good films, yet not wholly faithful. Um, one is Jaws, which has um, subplots and characters and a slightly different ending in Peter Benchley's novel than they have in Spielberg's film. But I. The the only faults I ever really find in Spielberg's film is that there are some sequences of downtime that go on a little bit too long. But but if that's like that's me nitpicking it, I love that film. I've loved that film since I was a kid, and I, I read the book as a teenager because I finally found it in a book. I was in a used bookstore somewhere from like New Hampshire, and they had a Jaws. I was like, oh cool. Um, the other one is High Fidelity, where where Cusack and and um, the director and everything took. Hornby's novel, which is set in London, put it in Chicago, kept the characters more or less the same, right. but changed it around to fit Chicago. Right. But both work. But I think very, very well. I definitely that that that's that is one that was on my list mm-hmm. um, to 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 talk about because again the changing of the setting would seem like a pretty major change. Yeah. But again, I think. Stephen Frears, I think. Stephen Frears, that's who it yeah. is, yeah. I, th- I think, you know, he was able to capture again that feel or tone, as you were talking about, yeah. of the book. Kept some of the shtick, the top five lists, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. You know, at this point, I can't say how close the plots of the books and the movies were. My memory is <clears throat> such. It's but been I about... remember thinking, yeah. <laughs> I remember thinking at the time that the movie captured the feel of the book really well it really it did because i had read the book right before seeing the movie and i haven't read the book in about 15 years but i've seen the movie over and oh, yeah. over again because i have it on dvd and it's, it's, yeah. yeah it does i mean granted they they, they tweaked a few of the music references sure, and things like that sure. because of probably out of necessity um for, for the audience but but you're right it, it is just one where you took a lot of liberties with that and it, and it paid off in a way that Maybe it might not with something else. Um, I, th- I think similarly, um, Hornby's about a boy. Mm-hmm. That adaptation again was not bad. You change things where you need to. Same basic plot, same basic yeah. character arcs. Yeah. You know, make some Hugh Grant references. You know, pitch it, pitch it towards his strengths yeah. and weaknesses, and and you've got a. The, yeah. the book's probably better than the movie, but again, sort of captured that the light tone. Mm-hmm. That well, he, was, that and was he, both. And Chris, I think it was Chris White's or Paul White, one of the White's brothers directed mm-hmm. that, and yeah. they were the guys who directed um, American Pie. And uh, the one thing they did that was very, very smart was they excised the entire, um, all of the various Nirvana references exactly. that were in there because right. cause it would have dated it. 
Yep. I mean, granted, it was made years after the book was published, but it was almost like you need to get rid of that. That way, it doesn't because either then you have to do a nostalgia flick, right? Or it's just going to seem very kind of out of date because mm-hmm. referencing popular culture tends to be current popular culture and something yes, is dangerous. Is very dangerous. Um, just looking, I'm looking at. I have my list of okay. This is what what filmmakers do, and when it doesn't go well adding elements to appeal to modern audiences or almost being too stylish with the adaptation can, can backfire on you. Um, I did not enjoy what I saw of Baz Luhrmann's version of the great Gatsby. Um, I'm not that hot on the Redford movie either, to be honest with you. Um, I think it's all right. I saw that one so long ago. I don't remember. Yeah. It's, it's a little dull. Mm-hmm. And Redford, which Redford's if I remember the Redford. book, which if I remember the book, isn't that far away. No. I, the, the the book, I will tell you, that book starts slow. It's one of those books in American literature that you have to get a couple of chapters in, and then it just picks up like that. But but yeah, but but the I don't know. There's just it was uh, it was one of those books that not movies. The, the first one it, it's serviceable, but the, the the DiCaprio version, I was just like, then again. That's my bias against Baz Luhrmann, who I am now, not now, a fan did of. Did he pull his trick of using more modern music in that one? I oh, remember. I have to remember. I know I, that is that that is sort of one of his go-to I, moves. I'm coming to as tell those period pieces with yeah. modern music, and I, I think something like that. You're either all in mm. or you're not. I can't. I tend to be not. Yeah, so I, I tend to be not too, and I can't really speak to it too much because yeah. I haven't seen the whole thing. I've seen bits and pieces of it when I've popped in next door at work and they're watching it because I'm on planning and I'm like, Hey, you're watching something that looks interesting, you know? And I pop in, um, because I was just like, okay, like, you know, let's or I'm covering the class or something. So, but it's just, again, but then again, that's my personal thing against Baz Luhrmann because I didn't like his Romeo and Juliet and I did not like Moulin Rouge. So that's my hang up. But then, but then there are movies, there's a, uh, there are two versions of Lord of the Flies. One is a British one from like the mid '60s, which is actually pretty good. Um, I think it's fairly decent. It, it pops up like one. It would have been in. I don't want to say what year it was, but quite some time ago. I wonder if that's the one we saw. There's a, that was a black and white one. Yeah, there, yeah, that a, sounds right. Yep. There, yeah, there's a color one. one that was an American production from about 1990, and it was at the time one of those movies where there were a few very um, kind of hip teen actors in it. And they added a few um, elements to it that really just made it dumb. Um, <laughs> they like sometime at some point in the book, a pilot crash lands on or ejects from his plane, crashes on the island, but the pilot's dead and they find the corpse and they think it's the beast and it's this whole thing. Well in that in that American remake, if my memory serves me correctly, the pilot survives and this is this now there's this guy with the kids on the island and stuff. And it's just it 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 was like well, why are you doing this? And then it's it's like or it's or it's like changing the ending to have a happy ending as opposed to learning the lesson from the death of the character. Like, why is this character surviving at the end of the movie? He didn't survive at the end of the book. Um, Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. <laughs> and then, and then Crichton goes along and writes the lost world and, and, 
and Goldblum's in the book, and I'm like, wait a second, he died in the first book, and then you realize that Goldblum that Creighton wrote a sequel to the movie, yeah, exactly. not his original novel, and I'm like, okay. In my mind, Arthur C. Clarke gets away with that for 2010 <laughs> because he all he did was just change the setting from Saturn to Jupiter. You can't. You killed the character. You killed the major character. Let the guy die. I don't care what Spielberg did. You know, like, it's stuff like that. And I'm going on a tangent here a little bit, but it's like... <laughs> um, I mean, have they ever truly adapted some of Twain's Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn's stories to fit all of the deeper things? Because all I ever remember from Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn movies is, like, hey, we're going to paint the fence. And I was going to say that exactly. That's... that's... That's the only scene I can remember yeah. seeing. And I don't know if there's... I, see, I didn't like Huck Finn, so I'm like, I don't remember if I ever actually saw a Huck Finn movie and if it had any of the, you know, what Twain was really getting at from what I remember from 20 years ago in English class. <laughs> More than 20 years ago at this point. So, I mean, so what to you, like, when when you're getting a bad movie out of a if it's either a bad adaptation because they just changed too much and it didn't work, or if it's just simply a bad movie, even if they're faithful, I mean, how does that go wrong? Aside from a bad director, maybe. I, mean, I, th- I, th- I think sometimes there's just fundamentally a, a misunderstanding almost of the different medium, the different media mm-hmm. of what works in a book versus what could work visually. Um, and then I think some of the things you were saying too about sort of needless adding and often it might be we need you know, we need a subplot here or we need we need a romance you know, the the novel didn't have a love story we need that <sighs> or it didn't have the cute kid we need to hit that target demo for the movie Ugh. I mean again sometimes you you, you feel that that editorial hand or that, that studio involvement, you wonder giant or, 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 you know, it could just be for the filmmakers themselves trying to appeal. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And it, I don't know if it, if it bugs me more when it's a well-known piece of, of fiction of literature than when it's something that I'm not too familiar with. Um, I did Eddie and the Cruisers a couple years ago and um, the PF Kluge book had just come back in print maybe about a year before. I think Kluge got a hold of the copyright because it had been out of print for a couple of decades and copies on eBay, you know, first printings go would go for, you know, if you found it at a used bookstore, you were very lucky. But on eBay, if you look for it, it's I'm not paying forty bucks for a copy of a right. of Eddie and the Cruisers. But I got it. I got it for you know whatever list price it was, fifteen dollars or whatever. And I read it. And there's so much of that that is faithful. Yet the tone of the ending of the book, whereas um, the the filmmakers changed things around and they made it a lot more nostalgic in places than it was in the book. And the book is very, very dark and stays very, very dark. Um, whereas the movie kind of up ends on an up note and, um, it didn't bother me. Right. 
you know, it was like, okay, this is just one, this is the interpretation of it. And I kind of got it, but that's because I was very familiar with the film and I'd never read the book. And I was almost reading the book out of a curiosity. Whereas if they were to take, um, oh, I don't know, you know, if, if, uh, when they would, if they were to adapt, uh, <laughs> now I'm blanking on a book that I, or like, like Fahrenheit 451, or which I keep coming back to because it's the, one of the more recent books I've read. But, um, or if they were to take just anything that you're very, very familiar with, like The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, and completely, I mean, they made changes, but the changes seem to be, you know, good enough. But if they were to take, I don't know, um, Huck Finn and throw in a a, a romance that's not there, you know, and stuff like that. People would, I don't think it would work. I don't think I made much sense. And I, essentially, like with the Eddie and the Cruisers one, Mm -hmm. my impression is that was not a huge best selling book. No, it's kind of, and the whole thing is kind of a cult. You know, so my, you know, my impression is that probably, you know, the filmmaker was looking to, you know, looking for material. Yeah, and that the concept of that of that movie, you know, the hook or yeah. the hook of the book, you know, the rock star fakes his own death, and mm-hmm. et cetera. That that's what he bought. You know, he didn't buy the beginning, the middle. He didn't buy the entire book. He didn't yeah. buy the tone of the book. He like he wasn't intending to recreate the book. Yeah, he was intending to tell the core story mm-hmm. of that. And again, I think if you got the plot elements and you don't have the tone, but yeah, you know, I think. And I think some of those, some of those can work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that, that's one of my favorite all-time movies. Yeah, it, so it's I'm, a, I'm, no, I, I'm biased towards towards giving the film any benefit of the doubt that I can. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, and and that's but again, but you know, but from a filmmaker's perspective, again, if you purchase a say not a best-selling book, mm-hmm. you know, where you're bringing audience expectations, you know, into it. If in other words, if the audience doesn't know that it's a book. Or, or you know, isn't you know isn't isn't bringing that history or from the filmmaker's perspective baggage yeah. to viewing the movie yeah uh, you know to me there's probably some more freedom there yeah and know, from the from you know to from the the director's perspective or the writer's perspective I think you have a really really good point and I think that um, with something that's well established or is just very popular of the moment there is a lot more pressure on to quote get it right. Exactly. Um, although the, one of the things I was before I get to, well, we've both made lists of um, best, worst, and these sorts of things. There's about I think three or four different things we were going to talk about. Um, one point I was making, and, and I had a question about this, and I couldn't really exactly phrase it, but I was thinking about adaptations of po- things that are. Yes. I don't. I, I hate. It sounds pretentious of me to say popcorn. You know, the, or or just current bestsellers current versus hits. current right. hits versus classic literature and things like that. Classic literature literally right. meaning things yeah. that are much older. And the one and, and and some of these have box office draw and some of them have award season draw. And and we could right. probably do a whole sub show <laughs> on this. The, the, the one thing between those. Yeah, two, and, yeah. The one thing that has always bothered me, and this just is probably my English teacher bias showing, is that anytime something that is classically literary becomes popular, meaning that it was published decades, even centuries ago, and it comes back into the public consciousness for whatever reason, there's this if weird... It was- if it was ever taught by a high school English teacher, mm-hmm. you yeah. can say it. There's this weird <laughs> media tendency to be almost insulting 
toward it where it's the Oprah's book club effect um, okay. where she, she would put uh, two books that I remember reading um, that were or three because three books that I remember that were classic pieces, English class level type of thing, either in college or, or high school. Um, L.A. Wiesel's Night, which I actually teach, um, Steinbeck's East of Eden, and uh, Anna Karenina. And Oprah, back in the day when she would do the book club, that was it was your book was automatically up there. And when it was a because they were so used to current authors, Jonathan Friends and um, uh, you know who, whoever was you know if you got an Oprah's book list and you were you were published you were a current author that was it was it was gold you were gold. Um, but like you know, she put Steinbeck, and people are like, "Oh wow, Oprah's recommending something old." And it's like, well, it's not like nobody ever read East of Eden, <laughs> you know? Like, you know what I'm getting at? It's like they have this like um, the they make a movie about an old work of literature and or, or even Shakespeare, and they're like, "Ooh, wow, people are going to see Shakespeare." It's like. So, but I think it's just me being pissy yeah. about the media and, but it is interesting how there's a certain cachet about movies based on classic literature as opposed to, um, current or to break down in that sort of odd publishing categorization that, of quote, y- literary fiction adults. and young adults. <laughs> and, yeah. oh yeah, because it, like, cause I remember arguing with somebody on the internet cause that's what we do, um, about <laughs> why I kept calling a book a YA book. And she's like, why are you calling it? Why are you calling it? I said, because it's the publishing designation for it. And I'm just using it as a qualifier because it's just, it's just easier because people will understand when I say young adult fiction, it's what even the though stores and the libraries, and the yeah. publishers call it. And it's not, it's always not, it's not always fair. There are certain things that are categorized like grunge music from the early 1990s. Nobody really liked that label, but the label stuck. And sometimes you have to use the label to describe it to people so that they know what you're talking about. And I don't like the phrase literary fiction because it's just an odd, yeah, you know, hoity-toity yeah. sounding phrase, you know, that, okay, congratulations, you wrote a novel that has a down ending or something. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's dead and you have daddy issues. Well, in the book I mean, we that. know in the, in the comic book world, you know, especially in the, you know, Graphic novel, original graphic oh novel. God, I hate the first there's, one. there's almost a subtitle called the cancer memoir. <laughs> you know, of people writing about their own personal struggles, usually in black and white graphic novel. I mean, that's that's almost a subcategory of that. You it's mean so common? You mean the one I covered a couple of episodes ago? <laughs> you know, right. on this uh, on this idea of sort of current mm-hmm. adaptations, current works. Um, I talked maybe a year ago with Trentus mm-hmm. on his show, and I think Sean Engel, Scott was probably there, a couple of the folks, about why comic fans get so excited when their character gets turned into a movie. And we never really answered that question really well, but I've been thinking about it for about a year. Okay. I think it's a really interesting question. And I think there's something about – I think it's similar to the, the, this you know, this young adult you know, fantasy uh, or this young adult fiction. Why is it so exciting to see your favorite book on the big screen? And I think there's something about maybe about sharing what you love and, and you know and that and 
getting some sort of um, you know, getting more people, uh, you know, to see this thing that you like. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something about affirmation. Yes. Some outside affirmation. And that's, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, just this afternoon, I ran this question by, by Emily, my 20 something daughter mm-hmm. and podcast partner. And she came up unprompted with affirmation yeah. as yeah. the reason why, you know, kids get so, you know, fans of, of uh, Hunger Games are so excited to see it on the screen finally, or folks who've read Harry Potter yeah. love seeing it on the screen. Yeah. You know, there's something about more people seeing it, more eyes, even, you know, you know, tr- traditionally, you know, you know, it books, even YA books, books are, th- were thought of as the more, you know, fancier, more impressive achievement. Right. Yeah. But, Somehow seeing it on the big screen, seeing your thing on the big screen, um, you know, is is more ex- more exciting somehow. There's like a legitimization that goes on there. Yeah, yeah. That especially with comics, because even though comics have been around for right. seventy five, eighty, hundred years, there's still comic books are still a bit of a subculture. I, yeah, I, on, I, on some level, I, I think in a lot of ways, comic books on average. Are looked on the same way young adult fiction is. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I yeah. think there's pretty close parallels there. Yeah, and and you know we can, and and I've read plenty. I have a lot of independently published or even GC published um, books that are are way more of the literary bent, but even then, it's still not as widely read as say, or not as widely seen. So when you see it up on the screen, yeah, you're, I think you're right. That affirmation is really good. Um. So, so I asked um, to, to kind of close this out here, and we'll go kind of question by question here um, to come up with examples of films for things that are great, things that are not so great, uh, things we would never, ever, ever want to see made into a film, and then film books that either either need an update, or we could do both if you want, either need an update or really don't have an adaptation that you'd like to see done, and this could be this could run the gamut. And like I said, the only limitation I think I placed on us was um, plays for, for obvious reasons. So let's start with a, a, um, a, a just a great one. One of some of your favorites or, or one or one or two of your favorites. Well, my, my honorable mention was high fidelity. Okay. Um, but my, my, my number one here is my favorite novel of all time written by a British guy, so you'd probably hate it. <laughs> I've never read it. <laughs> Tess of the Durbervilles. I, I, I have a, a copy. I have a copy of that? I either had that or Jude the Obscure because my wife had it in yeah. college. It's it's somewhere in, it, it, it's somewhere on the... Maybe I after I get 11th through... 11th or 12th grade English? Come on. I have I have three George R. R. Martin <laughs> books to read. So in about five years, exactly. I'll get <laughs> But that that book, T- Test of the Durbervilles, got a very highly regarded adaptation. Okay. Late seventies, maybe nineteen eighty ish, and certified mm-hmm. bad dude Roman Polanski. Oh, really? Took the novel, uh, uh, Thomas Hardy, if we didn't mention that, mm-hmm. and turned it into the movie Tess. Nominated for six Oscars, including huh. Best Picture. Huh. One one three in sort of cinematography, costuming, all that 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 sort of stuff. It is a absolutely gorgeous movie, and it's almost three hours long. So they didn't you know, didn't have to cut too much compared. 
Uh, it is terrific. It is sad. It's heartbreaking. It's tragic. Those are not spoilers. Every Thomas Hardy book is sad, <laughs> heartbreaking, and tragic. I mean, the old joke about Thomas Hardy novels is if you want if you want one with a happy ending, you start at the back and read to the front. <laughs> but and it stars Natasha Kinski. So enough said. Oh wow, Natasha Kinski. My uncle had this poster of her with a snake. Um. But uh, but it's my favorite book, and it awesome. was turned into an Oscar award winning movie. So I really can't complain. Great, I mean, it, it, it's on my list because um, you've mentioned it a couple of times. So it has come on my list, and and if I don't have a copy, because like I said, I can't remember which Hardy book my wife had from um, what we hung on to before we sold a lot of books when we moved last time, and um, it was either that or Jude the Obscure because she she took uh, she majored in English down at down at Mr. Jefferson's university there. So, um, and I, I only minored. So, and I never, I never came upon Hardy. I, I came upon plenty of Dickens, Austin, um, and then the poets of the time, um, who I enjoy, uh, you know, I, I enjoy Yeats and then going back. Although I will tell you, I should turn in my English card for this. There are times when like, I can't tell the difference between Byron Shelley and Keats, but, um, Mine is a little more contemporary. Um, my my honorable mention is something that I've covered on another podcast already, so I just want to mention it. And you can go look up that episode of In Country, but um, and it surprised me because when I first sat down to watch the original version of All Quiet on the Western Front a few years ago, when I was first teaching it, I couldn't get through it, and decided, okay, I'm not going to show this to my students because I don't think they're going to enjoy it. I sat down again to watch it for the podcast episode I did. And after I got through the first 10, 15 minutes and after I got kind of used to the film, because it's a very, very, very old film, I could not stop watching. And it's a long film. It's like two and a half hours, I think, or so. And and so, so All Quiet on the Western Front, the original 1930 version, which one was the first talkie to win Best Picture. Oh, wow. Lou Ayers as uh, Paul Bomber. Uh, no, Lou Ayers directed it. Oh, God. It's late. I can't remember. I might be. I might have the right. Um, excellent movie. If you haven't seen it, Turner Classic Movies shows it at least once a year, uh, usually around Oscar time. But mine is going to be actually a pretty easy one. I absolutely love To Kill a Mockingbird with Gregory Peck as Atticus Finch. Um, and funny enough, I read it in tenth grade. And funny enough, I had a tenth grade English teacher who insisted that we that she never show the film versions of things. So I did not see this film until years later when I just happened to catch it on cable on Turner Classic Movies. And yes, they took some things out and but I mean it's there's a reason people love this and there there's a reason he's so associated with that character and and it's um it gets the it hits all the right keys. It has the right cast. It has that sort of I want to use the word gravitas and I don't think I'm using it correctly. <laughs> and the book is fuller, but the book, it, it's a companion piece. And I think that's what, I think that's what you can really, really hope for in a film that's based on a novel or, or something like that. So, okay. The bad. <laughs> for me, this one was easy. I am legend. Oh, from the short story yes. or short novel, I should say, by Richard Matheson. And there have been three adaptations of 
varying faithfulness and varying quality. But here I'm talking about the one that takes the name of the novel as its name, the one starring Will Smith. And the problem is one of the things I mentioned before, theme. Mm -hmm. The problem is that the novel has a great ending. And it's an ending, which I am going to spoil. But it gives the title I Am Legend such a terrific meaning. It's not a happy ending. It's not a great ending. I mean, but it is a great ending. Mm -hmm. And it's a thought-provoking ending. And the ending of the novel has stuck with me for five, ten years, however long it's been since I've read it. Love that ending. The ending is the theme of the movie, okay? Yeah. And the movie totally misses that point. Mm -hmm. Because our hero is the last man on Earth spending his days killing the zombies or vampire monsters, whatever whatever they are. And he hides during the night when they roam the Earth. So for this world, he's the boogeyman. (laughs) right? He's the story that these monsters tell their children to keep them in line, right? He's what they fear, right? He's, he's, he's hiding under their bed yeah. because they'll go to sleep. They will wake up and some of them will be dead at his hand. He is legend, right? Yeah. But in the movie, I don't know, Will Smith has some magic blood or something and it saves the world. He's the savior of mankind. So he's legend. I mean, it's hard to get 180 degrees different from the point of a book to the point of a movie. And even then... They changed the ending of the film before it's released in the original ending of the film, even though it's not as it's not close to the book. At least the original ending of the film is a little bit more pessimistic than the one that's in theaters. You could watch the original ending on the DVD. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that a, is that is such a great book, and and it's and again it's it, it it is a classic Twilight Zone type of thing mm-hmm. where the title makes sense at the end, yeah, in such a great way, yeah. But Will Smith can't be, you know, the I, evil boogeyman who haunts. That's the thing, though, monsters, and, nightmares, or whatever. Which is such a great idea. I know, but I that's the thing. That. And, and I and and maybe I'm wrong here, but I've read that the, he's one of those actors that has it in like in his contract where he brings in his people, and it's almost like he can't come off bad in a movie. Right. And you're getting to the point in your career, will where you can take that chance. You know, yeah. you don't always yeah, have to be the hero. Um, it, it's worked to a certain extent for some people, but you know, that's we could. We could discuss that too. That, that that that's worth a movie podcast as well. Where like you know, you know, good actors playing bad roles and stuff like that. Um, mine is Beowulf, um, specifically oh. the Robert Zemeckis film, the, and it's the, the faux CGI, almost mm-hmm. CGI, and motion it's, capture. And it's not that because I can live with that. It's the fact that they took what's essentially a very, very old Norse. Anglo-Saxon epic poem and put modern conventions in it in a way that that just didn't work. They made Grendel sympathetic. They had this whole subplot where his mother, they added sex to his mother and the fire dragon at the end, which was... In the epic poem, it's essentially just another monster that comes and it's my last stand. 
It's I'm going to go out because if you're going to go out like a Viking, you're, you know, if you're a Viking, you're going to go out like a Viking. Blaze of blaze of glory. It's, as it's they him say. literally going out in a blaze of glory. And there's, but there's this whole element they added to it in the script that the, the fire dragon is his illegitimate child with Grendel's mother. And you're like, and I'm, I'm, I'm watching this. I'm like, what the heck am I watching? And it, it, it ruined it. Cause I, I'm one of those people who, who loved I, I do love my fair share of epic poetry. I, I absolutely adore the Odyssey. I threw the Iliad across the room. <laughs> I literally threw the Iliad across the room in my freshman year of college, but I loved the Odyssey, um, and I, I enjoyed the Aeneid, um, which is probably worth a, worth a, worth, worth a movie. Um, but And I loved Beowulf. I loved Beowulf when I read it in high school, and I loved it again when I had to read it in college for a medieval lit class. And I was like, this is great. And you could do that movie straightforward. You don't have to make it like, why does the villain, what is this modern convention of making the villain sympathetic or affected in some way or another? Like he can be a monster. It's okay. You know? And and that's, I think that's, it just went so far off and it was just like, and there are other versions of Beowulf that are just absolutely horrible in terms of that. I haven't really even seen, or they're like, schlock theater type of stuff but this was a big budget movie that was using you know Robert Zemeckis using his his toys and everything and the action sequences were well done the fight with Grendel is done extremely well and it's very faithful to the book but but the added there's just this it once you leave that and it becomes this whole soap opera it's Sounds like they're trying to fit it into uh, yeah twentieth twenty first century movie mm-hmm. you know boxes. You have to hit yeah. this point and this point exactly, and then there has to be this conflict. These two characters have to conflict. Has yeah. to be a love triangle. Has to be this. Has to be that. Because the focus group said so or something. I mean, that's exactly <laughs> what it was. Um, well, one of my favorite one of my favorite things I've ever heard about the movie industry was uh, this must have been a quote from somebody. I heard it on a film on a film criticism podcast. But the the point was that the way Hollywood thinks that, you know, if, if five of the top 10 movies last year featured guys wearing red, red shirts, Hollywood would sit around thinking, we need to get more movies about guys with red shirts. You know, they f- latch onto the silliest things and s- assume that that's what matters. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's um, you see that in TV all the time, where they chase trends. Um, where uh, a show is popular, and then there are fifty derivative clones. Lost got that way for a little while, where they go, "Oh, there's a central mystery, so this is going to be another show with a central mystery," or um, the various Sex in the City knockoffs that came on, you know. And things like that. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a really really good point yeah, the, to make. But the the conclusion wasn't Lost is a really well written uh, TV show about character interactions. We mm-hmm. should try that. Yeah. No, that that was not the lesson. No, it's can you solve <laughs> or, or, the puzzle? Or Sex in the City. The lesson was not yeah. four very distinct voices in a mm-hmm. modern context. That yeah. that was not the lesson. It was something else was the lesson. <laughs> Right. Okay. So, um, next up, thinking of a of a book, piece of literature, whatever you want to call it, you love, that you will never 
ever, 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 like, I'm going to go to the studio and burn the place to the ground if you try to make this movie. Never make this movie. You know, I struggled with this one just oh, as my, to what, this what, came easy for me. what to think about. So, But I was thinking sort of the place I landed was sort of historically there have been books that have been considered unfilmable. Mm-hmm. I think of like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, even though Terry Gilliam did manage to pretty much make something out of that. I mean, he did all right with that, yeah. yeah. Or speaking of, of Terry Gilliam, Don Quixote, sort of mm-hmm. classically, you know, a, a cursed movie yeah. project. And if 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 people haven't seen the documentary Lost in La Mancha about no. Gilliam's effort to make that movie, huh. his his Don Quixote movie, and how exactly it all fell apart, it the the documentary is worth is definitely worth uh, worth the watch. Um, but I guess I, I'm still sort sort of on this unfilmable thing. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's sort of next on the Tolkien list. Please don't try the Silmarillion. It's That's, not a narrative. Nah. It's not. It, it's a reference book. Please I, do not try to make a movie of that. I never got through that. I tried. <laughs> never got through it. Actually, this isn't my choice, but um, that actually reminded me of Ulysses. Right. Similar. That yeah. I a book that I tried and I literally sent it back to my friend because my friend had moved away <laughs> and, and I borrowed his copy and I, I mailed it back to him with a post-it on it that said, I'm sorry, I tried. Um, mine's The Catcher in the Rye. Mm, okay. A movie that somebody wants to make. Sure. It's, it's the, it's somebody, it's Salinger died and you know there was somebody who like yeah. their spider sense tingled in Hollywood. And they're like, oh, I get to make this movie. Don't make this movie. Yeah. Do not. The expectations are too high. The You'll, you'll mess it up because you'll, you, you'd have to do it as a period piece or else you're not going to get it right. right. It's been essentially been done. Because there are so, because the Catcher in the Rye is such the archetype for the angry young teenage boy story. See, that's what I was going to say. You don't need almost, to do it. Yeah, yeah you, you don't have to do it. I was going to say, you don't have to do it as a period piece. Yeah, that you, could be one where you look for tone, but yeah. as you said, that's been done. But yeah, you, you go from, you have, you can start with Rebel Without a Cause and work your yeah. way through <laughs> The Graduate. You can work your way through, um, Pieces of like John Hughes films from the eighties, um, the perks of being a wallflower. I mean, it's been it's essentially been done. You don't need to do this, and if you're trying to do this, it's like it's like when Gus Van Sant remade Psycho. Like doing this as a film would be pure ego on somebody's part, and I and and it's one of my favorite novels of all time. And I'm like, no, you don't need to touch it. So don't. So it's unfilmable in the sense that it, yeah. it's not necessary. I go back to my to my list earlier, and I real I do realize as I was putting this together how lucky I am that Tess got the Oscar caliber treatment that it did. Mm-hmm. And it's probably, you know, I'm uh, when I think of it, I probably think of the film and the book, you know, together. I'm commingling them. I've you know, yeah. I, I read it or watch it every three or four years. Mm-hmm. So I'm probably you know mixing up elements of it to make you know this one mashup in my mind. Yeah, I've done that too. And, you know, I, I do realize how fortunate I am yeah. 
you know, to for the the book on my list to have gotten a good, you know, that that top notch treatment, and how crushed I would be yeah. if it if it hadn't. How how Fahrenheit four fifty one died. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the la- the last one I was we were going to talk about is um, a book or books that that could use an update. Um, can use that adaptation. I had originally when I was thinking of all quiet on the Western front way back when I was doing it in country, I was like, Oh, this could use a new, Oh, you could film a new version of this movie. And then I saw really saw the original version for what it was, what it was. And even a remake that they did in 79 with Richard Thomas. And I was like, nah, you don't need to make this movie again. It's been done. Um, but there are some that I think could use another shot or there are things that have really never been done that, you know, it might be worth uh, filming. So what's, what would yours? What would yours be on that list? Yeah, this was an- another tough one um, because no, I've, got, I've got a lot of can. I've, I've got a lot of candidates. Is it? Mm-hmm. A, yeah, so did I. Is this, is this a book I'd like more people to experience, or one that I think is easily adapted? Yeah. Uh, so I didn't quite know where to land. So I have some candidates. Well, one's a recent novel that is is getting a movie treatment next year, and that's. Um, science fiction book called The Martian by Andy Weir, and it's getting a lot of science fiction award buzz I've as a top novel of 2014. Heard of it, have not read it, but I've heard uh, of it. It is it is a great a great book. So I'm I'm excited about that one coming. Cool. Um, I, I in in terms of updates, I, I had a couple as well. Um, you know, again, these have to be a few years down the road, but I'd like to see an actual adaptation of World War Z. Oh, yes. Which was not what we got with that movie. Now, I heard that movie, by the time it came out after its, I'm exaggerating, you know, ninth script writer and very, very lengthy you know, production process. That, that process, we actually got a decent movie, from what I hear. For a, but for it was a, not an adaptation of that book. For a zombie popcorn flick, it's a good movie, yeah. but the entire plot of the movie could be summed up in the phrase, well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> And, and it's the book. The book has a lot of depth to it. I just love, the structure of the book is interesting. Oh, I love that. But you book. could do that. You could. They could have done that. I would have structured that book, that adaptation. It probably wouldn't have done well, but I think that you could do that if you wanted. And if you wanted to do it in a different way of doing a zombie movie, something along the lines of like Warren Beatty's Reds, where you're where you're. Because there's a lot of all these interviews that are intercut with the plot. And since it's an oral history, it's almost like I, – I don't know if that would work on film. But I'm trying to think like how could yeah, you – I don't know how you would do it. But, yeah, I don't know how you would that, do it. And that may have been what – you know, eventually what the yeah. – you know, what the, the, the breaking point of that yeah. movie was but, with the with the studio. I, but I absolutely love World War Z. It and, is such a great novel. And I, I, I have to mention one more for my co-hosts on the Book Eye Show. That we are all big Ender's Game fans. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what we got last year was not an Ender's Game movie. My, we're, just, we're gonna pretend that did not happen. That's what my students said. I was I've never read Ender's Game myself, and a couple of my students had said, Wow, that was that was, that was pretty Yeah. Pretty bad. Yeah. Um, Again now when that and World War Z have to wait a few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. So other than Fahrenheit 451, what did you have? <laughs> I had um, I I had gone through a bunch of stuff and and I was like I was looking at I, I was thinking of um, 
uh, I was thinking of Game of Thrones recently, and I was wondering, um, there have been a lot of adaptations of Arthurian legend. Um, I, I think, uh, I was like, wouldn't that, wouldn't the entire more Tartar or something on that level work as a mini series or something of HBO? But then again, I'm like, you're kind of, there's kind of a, are you causing a glut of sword and sorcery type of, of projects out there? I then wondered if we're ever going to get a definitive version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Other than, other than a movie called Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Oh, that, that movie's, <laughs> I mean, it stuck pretty well the plot, but that scene where he turns Helen, Helena Bottom Carter into the, um, bride, which is not in the novel, by the way, and De Niro's on one end of the room and Branagh's in the other, and they're calling to her like it's the end of an episode where someone found a lost dog and picked up the dog and took care of the dog, and now the dog thinks it has a new owner, but the older owner shows up, and it's like, come on, come to me, and I'm sitting, I showed it in class, and we were all like, what is this? Um, to me, the best example of Frankenstein was Mel Brooks. So, if someone was talking about on a podcast, on the film podcast, that Young Frankenstein <laughs> is actually very similar to maybe Bride of Frankenstein, or there's a you know a a classic Frankenstein. Scene. Oh yeah. That young Franken, that's the one that really is paired in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, almost beat for beat. Yeah. In some cases. And, and I, I and enjoy it. might be bride of, yeah. Yeah, I enjoy the, the, the Boris Karloff version for what it is, but it's, you know, I, I just, I wonder if, if that's a novel. And that's one of my favorite novels as well. I really enjoy it. But, I, but would, would you be satisfied with a sort of modernized take that, again, went to the theme, mm. to, went to the playing God theme with, Genetic I, manipulation with some other version, or or does it have to be that story? I don't know because part of me wants to see the period piece. Although, yeah, yeah, the Branagh film is a little. It might be too recent. It's been. It has been twenty years, but um, but part of me is like, yes, a nice science, modern day science fiction take. But then I can. Then I wonder, has that already been done? Yeah, because Frankenstein stories so, yeah. aren't are Frankenstein has become a trope at this point. Um, but but either way, something a little more faithful. But the the one actual the one thing I was wondering, like, and I actually had to look up and see if they've ever actually tried to adapt this. And it, and it, this would be an incredibly ambitious project. And special effects ha- are are on the level where they could give it a shot. Would be Milton's Paradise Lost. Wow. I mean, it just because. Just to I mean, see it's if somebody epic, epic hero's journey. It, it is, <laughs> but if you think about it, it's. I looked it up, and the only and there's nothing that suggests that it's ever been made into a film. There's a documentary called Paradise Lost, but that's about the West Memphis Three, I believe, um, which is a totally different thing. And I haven't, no, granted, I haven't read Paradise Lost in nearly twenty years, yeah. um, and it's a very dense in places very dry um, piece. But at the same time, it's like that this would be the project of somebody who is both good for a big epic, but also has a taste of sort of an avant-garde because you, you have to, 
there's a certain tone and there's a certain feel you have to get to it. So you wouldn't give this to Michael Bay. I wouldn't give anything to yeah. Michael Bay, but you wouldn't give this to Michael Bay. I don't think you'd give this to Spielberg. Well, you wouldn't give it to Spielberg because he's Jewish. But I mean, you 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 need somebody who is going to be very filthy to source material, but also has that sort of almost Lucas type of imagination yeah. to really imagine this world. Um, you know, like on the level of somebody like a like a Jim Henson or something like right. a Terry Gilliam, maybe, I don't know. Like yeah. it, it's, but it's like, you know, it's one of those things that it just, I kept coming back to it and it's not one of my favorites, believe it or not. It's just something I read and enjoyed and I have, I still have my copy. Well, you said you liked that epic poetry. You weren't yeah, I do. Yeah. And well, and I also, I'm also one of the few people I know who like the Canterbury tales too. And <laughs> that's been done. It wasn't done very well, but that would be good as a mini series or something. And again, that's, that's a good masterpiece theater piece to do. Because that's a character study more than it is um, epic poetry, but but I was like that would be this large scale, huge film. See, but I think with the maybe with the Doom return, <laughs> with the you know with the return of miniseries to TV, mm-hmm. you know maybe a six hour type yeah. or a BBC. You know, I always I I, yeah. I I always fall back on that. Well, if I can't make if if this daydream project, yeah, you know, if it's not going to be film, can at least the BBC get it and do six hours? That's a good point. <laughs> and, and I taped Agent Carter last night, um, mm-hmm. but I didn't get a chance to watch it yet. But I'm kind of hoping stuff like that does well and it gets made more because I miss the big event miniseries on yeah. network um, roots. Uh, the winds of war, like North and South and some of which were good, some of which were not great, but, but the idea of that, and that's something that these, what's happened with television is that reality event programming has taken over so much that you could, I I might've been born around the time roots first aired, but from what I gather, that was the appointment television of its day. People sat home and watched this, this saga and people sit and they, they, they get together and they watch The Walking Dead and they watch Mad Mad Men's Coming Back, which is a show that I absolutely love. And, you know, like I'm going to watch, you know, or or the new season of this is coming out and we're going to watch it. And we're going to talk about it. I'm like, um, uh, I'm not a doc. I've, I've never got into Doctor Who um, for no reason. Steve, whatsoever. Do you hate Stephen Lacey and Andy Leyland too? No. Do you just hate everything British? That's what I'm getting here, Tom. What? You hate everything British. I... Paradise Lost is the one exception. <laughs> I, I guess wrong. the irony of this would be that 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 I am um, the name Paneris is Italian because my my dad's father was Italian, but my my grandmother who was born in Newfoundland. Um, was of British descent. I'm the polar opposite of an Irish Catholic. I'm a British Protestant, <laughs> with a lot of German in there too. But but no no it's it's I just who I who kind of passed me by because by the time I started to come of age, um, and really got the, into science fiction, the dead period. Too. It was in the dead period of what yeah. It, it was in the dead period of who and and the only reason I haven't gotten into it now is just time. Um, I wonder about so, this, you know, this this mini series idea. I wonder how that, or versus say the Netflix sort of model of yeah. everything out in the as as important as social media is, 
I'm not sure. I mean, the concept of the Netflix model works, mm-hmm. but there's something about the appointment and then the week in between. I love the TV show Flash, and yeah. one of the things I love about it is getting on Facebook. Yeah. You know, shortly after it's over yeah. or within the next day. Yeah. And having those discussions. It's, yeah. And, uh, and, and you know, you'd miss that if they dumped six episodes all at once. And if we'd be at different stages of it, so yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know if if uh, House of Cards, you know, develops that same type of you know social following. Not so much different stages, you know. And and it's not again. You were talking about how Hollywood thinks. Hollywood doesn't think like that. Hollywood won't look at how people are doing that right. because Hollywood is convinced there's no such thing as a water cooler show anymore. And they'll just plug, or they, they think that everybody wants to watch The Biggest Loser or, or, or American. I don't even think anybody's watching American Idol anymore, but the, Dancing with the Stars, and they promote the crap out of that. But, um, shit, people but what, were... But what works about those shows, yeah. sorry to interrupt you, but what, what yeah. works about those shows is that there is especially the you know american idol and, and those ones those mm-hmm. ones that are closer to live or live live finales yeah that there is that water cooler i mean it's it's the exact yeah. opposite it's the, it is that you have to watch it then or you'll miss it that's yeah. the um the biggest uh highest ratings on cable tv ever <laughs> were achieved last weekend with two college football games and yeah you know, live events, whether it's the finale of American Idol or a sporting event, or even a, you know, even a a, a TV premiere, mm-hmm. you know, an event that has a date and a time, yeah, does generate interest, yeah. and it certainly generates buzz. But I th- I, th- I think you're right. I, I don't know that they're thinking. I just they they don't. Way. But it's it's all dumb things on some level and they can't they're so i don't know if if it's just the way their their business model works through advertising or whatever that they because it's not like networks haven't had intelligent shows over the last few years but they're in the ratings they're simply middling for the most part and but people still watch it but people but i mean there's an there's an audience out there for very in, for more intelligent. It doesn't have to be over the head of everybody, but it, right. it's well scripted television. Millions of people got obsessed with a podcast, the podcast serial, right? Exactly. At the end of last, and I, I got into it. I did not go as far as get on Reddit and do some of the things my friends were doing. I would check out the blog every once in a while. But a coworker said, "Have you listened to this podcast?" And I think I had listened to like the first four and then I was caught up and I was like from week to week, we were just like, did you listen to it yet? And that was a very well put together, very intelligent, you know, look into something. And it's like, and, and I, and I look at watching the flash, which is very, very well scripted. Um, Arrow, I actually enjoyed to an extent. I've said that Arrow suffers from, from the casting that every other show on that network suffers from. Everybody's very, very pretty. Um, but it's very, very well done. One, one, one piece of luck that Arrow's had is that it's been on the air for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So all the all the actors and actresses are a couple of years older. Yeah, meaning they're closer. To, <laughs> it's it, 
it's not as unreasonable now that they're in the positions that they're in. Yeah. You know? it's, yeah. it's getting all closer to be believable. Yeah, exactly. That, that exactly. this high-powered attorney and, and, you know, the business leader can all be, you know, in their mid-20s yeah. or whatever they are on that yeah. show. But, like, what would it take for NBC, and I'm going to say NBC because NBC is currently right now in, I think NBC among the big three, big four networks is probably in dead last at the moment. You know, um, see, I, I, out of the four, I think they're in fifth place. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so... If NBC, theoretically, therefore, probably doesn't have as much to lose, would it be worth taking a risk on giving you something on the level of a roots for maybe not during sweeps, but maybe during a time where there isn't a where they have like a hole to fill and they've just been rerunning crap and see if it works and if it doesn't work yes they lose money on it but how much money have they been losing on the olympics for the last 20 years you know i mean is it is it even worth a network like that considering even though nobody from nbc is listening to us right now (laughs) and if they are hi (laughs) give me give me a channel to run (laughs) (laughs) or just a little sponsorship that's all we have yeah Amy, but I mean, is is would it be worth the risk, or is it just something that that I'm just? <laughs> what do you think? I, I like the idea of throw everything at the wall and see what sticks, but I don't mm. think any network TV executive thinks that way. No, because I think by definition they have to put forth the idea that they know what's going to work, yeah. even if they don't. Yeah. So if they come out and say, we're just going to throw the first 20 pilots that come across the desk, we're going to film them, uh, and we're going to do a five miniseries, and we're going to reintroduce Movie of the Week, and we're going to see what happens. That's What that means is, I don't know what's what we're doing. So yeah, an know. executive can't say, I don't know what we're doing, I'm going to take a flyer. You know, I, I missed the Realistically, movie. you... Yeah. You, you I, can't do that. But. I miss the movie of the week sometimes. I miss <laughs> I miss old school television, cheesy television movies. The face on the milk carton, Mother May I Sleep with Danger, <laughs> Stalking Back. I mean, God, that's just the era of television. That's that's an art. Well, it's on cable because it's on you know Lifetime and Hallmark and stuff. But it's you know it, it's sad. It's sad that that. My my television is okay. Let me DVR a bunch of stuff. Um, watch the soup when it first airs, and then every night at ten thirty, just to wind down, I watch Rick Steves Europe on PBS. Oh, nice! And uh, and then watch the news. It's just like you know, where back in the day, I'd be like, hell yeah, the show's on at ten, and I'm gonna watch it. But yeah, you know, and it's and it's tricky. We we we're obviously not gonna go back in in an on demand world. We're not gonna go back. To where nothing is on demand, and you have to sit and watch. You know everything oh, yeah. at the at oh, you, you has to be that. appointment television. Yeah, but it'd be nice if some things were. No, it would be. It would be. And but but like I said, I mean, there's plenty out there for for people to mine in far as far as content. Which is the other frustration I have with Hollywood. There is so much. There are so many people who have original ideas for things. Or there are there's so much source material found in books, plays, oh, yes. whatever. 
and you want to remake Friday the 13th again. You know, I mean, like, ooh, let's reboot this. Let's do another version of this. Let's make RoboCop. I mean, our sense of nostalgia as a generation only stretches so far, and and they they tend to forget, at least my generation, saw through a lot of that crap for years and years and years and years, and, like, we weren't going to take everything that was fed to us. Yet they remake RoboCop and Total Recall because those are the movies we'll talk about on Facebook sometimes. But if we want to watch RoboCop and Total Recall, we'll go and watch RoboCop until I've got those movies. The real ones. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so a reimagining of something is not necessarily something you always want in terms of your stuff. And especially if it's a film that's already been done. It's it's tricky though. But again, that name recognition somehow works. Yeah. I wonder if as different as the reimagined Battlestar Galactica was from the original, mm-hmm. would it have gotten as many viewers if it had been called something else? It could easily have been called something else. It's true. You know, it, it had so little in common. That also had the advantage of being on a cable network Yeah, that yeah. did not um, – that, if that was on NBC, it would have never made it past the first season. Right. And, and that's another – I mean – we're going off on a tangent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tele- television's a thing where there are certain shows that would never, that would have never ever made it past their first season that are well regarded as some of the best shows on TV yeah, sure. because they were on HBO or they were on AMC or something where the network gave them the freedom in terms of airtime. Whereas NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox are still in that very old model of okay, a full order of. Um, a full order of a season is this many episodes and your sweet you have sweeps i think they still have sweeps in november february so. and and may and and you have a season finale in may and a season premiere in like september august or october if you're fox because you have the world series or or something and <laughs> one thing i noticed this this current season um is that you know, historically, TV shows have taken breaks for the holidays. Mm-hmm. But this year, they sort of took to the cable model and built those up to be big events and referred to them as mid-season finales, which I don't think Network had ever done before, certainly not on the scale that they did this year. You know, that in in, in essence, some shows no. really had a six or eight episode yeah. arc not ended, and it, then they'll pick up again in January or yeah. February. And the only time I can remember them doing that here and there in the past would be if it's, if it was a relatively new show that um, it was almost like they had just ordered the right. season. Like they, they, they had just said we're extending the season. So we don't even right. have a second half of the season to give you. So now it's the mid season finale, but yeah, no, that's a really, really good point. So anyway, um, we're, <laughs> we're, we have we have gone into another. Perhaps we'll come back and talk about that. We'll talk. We'll do. We'll but do our, a television. Something. Our message, Tom. Read books. <laughs> read books. Yes, and 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 I will make a note to read more. Um, read more prints. I. <laughs> the thing is, though, Alan, I looked at my college transcript recently because I'm I'm applying for a graduate program, and. The vast majority of the English courses I took in college were British literature. <laughs> it was a lot of it was poetry. There seems to be no evidence of that. Though. A lot of it was poetry and <laughs> drama. Um, there was Victorian poetry, um, and uh, I took a Shakespeare class, and I took um, 
I took a whole class on Chaucer and medieval lit. And then I took, uh, the one survey course I had to, I took two survey courses. One was American literature to the civil war. The other one was British literature from the early 1800s. It was basically from about Dickens to Yeats. So that, big swath of stuff and and it was more poetry than it was was novels so i think that's one of the reasons why i haven't read a lot of um a lot of english writers in terms of novels but i read a ton of poetry i taught british lit for a couple of years too and we read a lot of poetry and stuff so i have my appreciation it's just that they for some reason it's just you're bringing up books and i'm like yeah i haven't read that one and and but but american literature i'm short on poetry and long on right. fiction. So it's just, it, it is what it is. This one of the beauties of, of having a library card is just, I don't have to pay for this. sometimes. I'm a huge supporters of libraries, not just because they employ Emily, but, mm-hmm. uh, we, we, we have always been, we have Middletons have been library people for yeah. many generations. I also have the benefit of working in a building with its own library too. Exactly. So that, that helps as well as, as well as a storeroom of books that I sometimes use as my own personal <laughs> library. So, well, thank you. Thank you once. Thank you for coming on. Um, this was a lot of fun and, and we actually talked for a little longer than I thought we would, which is, and it was, it was really, really great. Please tell everybody where, uh, where they can find you. Well, mostly I can be found at, uh, the relatively geeky podcast network relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com that's me and my daughter Emily in our mostly comic book shows but of course for this uh, with this topic I have to give a shout out also to the book eyes uh, the first podcast uh, that I was a part of and I've been part of their rotating panel of co-hosts for a couple of years now so if you just want book talk we also talk about comic books and movies and TV. Sometimes we stray from the book part pretty. The connection can sometimes be a little tenuous. But mostly we focus on we focus on books on the book I show. And thanks for having me, Thomas. It was great. Oh, you're welcome. And um, I'll be back in a couple of weeks with uh, the next episode of my DC series. And then a few weeks from that, I am at this point not sure what the topic is going to be. I, I actually kind of know, but I'm trying to line up the guest for that episode. So you'll just have to find out until then. Thanks for listening and take care. You have reached the end of another episode of pop culture affidavit. All music clips and other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders. And since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, show notes, and essays on other topics random in the world of popular culture can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Pop Culture Affidavit also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is the division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? 
Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness.